beginning tonight, we're going to uh, take a brief trip into the book of Ezekiel. Uh, tonight, we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 2, next Sunday morning at Ezekiel chapter 3, and uh, the following, uh, and next Sunday night, uh, the first six verses of Ezekiel 8, and on Sunday morning, May the 13th, we're going to look at Ezekiel 8, uh, verses 7 through 12. So we're talking about chapters 2, 3, uh, and 8, and I would encourage you to uh, become familiar with them uh, so that uh, you may uh, benefit by what the Lord would want to teach us from them. Now, next Sunday morning, I'm going to have more to say about the man, Ezekiel, about his character, his personality, about his book. But allow me to make a couple of comments about him that uh, will help you understand the things that he will say uh, as the Lord's instrument. Whatever else may be said about Ezekiel, it is fair to say that he was a man of pa passionate intensity. A passionate intensity toward God as he related to him, toward the message that God had given him to deliver and toward those who heard that message. Uh, Ezekiel definitely was not mellow. Uh, if he had any mellow in him, uh, nobody ever saw it. And it's not discussed or presented in his book. It could be said that he is earnest, and he is that, because he is a. it seems as if he is a deadly, serious man, and he is. But there are reasons for it. He lived in the worst of times. When he was a young man and married, the death of his wife coincided with the fall of the city of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know how she died. We're not certain whether it was a part of the hostilities or not. But in one day's time, he lost not only his home, he was deported to Babylon, he lost not only his nation, his city, in a way his life's work, he also lost his wife. So he was a deadly serious man. He was very earnest. He has been called eccentric, which is a nice word for a little bit odd. And uh, it is fair to say that he was indeed eccentric. He was a man who paid fastidious attention to detail. Now, there are prophetic visions in the prophets that have great sweep and scope to them. And the message of the vision is in the grand events that it describes, in the sweep and the scope of the things that are seen, the, the sweeping visions of the end of time found in Daniel and Revelation are like that. But in Ezekiel... Every line, just about every phrase, every detail of the vision has significance. In fact, uh, there is so much precision in it that some of that detail is lost to us because he would give detail of things about the worship or about the places or, 
or about their way of life that we know nothing about. But it is obvious by the context that it was the kind of detail they would have been familiar with. And one of the things I like best about him is there is no indication in the over 20 years of ministry that this book represents from Ezekiel. There is no indication that he lost the wonder of the awesome God. He was awed by the God that he served. He never lost that sense of wonder and of the majesty of God. And I like the description of him that I read. He was a sensitive soul caught in the cross currents of history, driven by zeal for God, painfully aware of the tragedy that his people were going through. That is one of the things that seems to set some apart. Most obviously those who are prophets. And in Scripture, it must those that we read about there, it must often have been a sense of great pain to them. Now, some of them carried that well. Some of them did not allow that to spill over into the things they said and did publicly. But when you read Ezekiel, and when you read Jeremiah, and when you go to Daniel's bedchamber and you see him weeping in prayer over the condition of his people, you are seeing men who were less victims of events than many are, who understood not just the adversity as it effect, affected them, but they had something of an understanding of the, the scope and the effects far beyond their lives of events that were going on. If you live very long, you know the experience of uh, what uh, one popular author in the 1980s called Passages of realizing someday that you have just gone through a door. And having gone through that door, some things will never be the same again. Ezekiel the prophet was able to recognize when his people had gone through a door after which certain things would never be the same again for them as a people. Now, I do think I need to uh, offer a word of explanation. I do not believe that there are prophets today in the sense that there were prophets in the Scriptures. Now, it is a subject much debating in conservative Christian circles today. But I will summarize what I believe to be the bottom line of, of the, that discussion, and it is this. If there are prophets today in the same sense that there were prophets during the times the Bible was given by God to be our rule for faith and practice, if there are, 
then the Bible is not God's final word to us. The Word of God is complete. And certainly, in terms that Paul used, the spiritual gift of prophecy operates in our lives. But the apostles and the prophets in terms of the Bible were a unique gift of God to His people. They were His chosen instruments through whom we and all others have received the eternal Word of God that He has chosen to reveal to us. Therefore, I do not think even for a millisecond that anything I will say in the next uh, three weeks about prophets when I'm in the context of the book of Ezekiel has anything to do with me. But I'm glad you're sitting down. It doesn't have anything to do with you either. Nor anybody else that you know. Recognize the distinction between them. So, I want you to know that if I had something to say about an issue that I felt like was an issue in our congregation, I would address the issue. I wouldn't spend my time puttering back and forth among the 66 books of the Bible looking for a way to come at it through the side door. So just accept it for what it is. I'm going to have some things to say tonight and next Sunday morning about the nature of the prophet and his calling, but I am doing that for a reason. And the reason is that when we read the kinds of things that... a that an Ezekiel or a Jeremiah said, they can be insulting. They can be hard to take. They can be so harsh that it gives us a difficulty believing they could ever apply to the likes of us. Well, rest easy. Because the people that those words originally applied for, for the most part, held to a standard of personal conduct of righteousness that you or I would never consider trying to hold to. So they're not like us. They were better. But that's the reason so that we may see the prophet in his own context. And uh, as you'll, you'll understand why I'm offering this disclaimer as we get into Ezekiel chapter 2, which I think we ought to do now. So look with me, if you would, at Ezekiel chapter 2. It is a short chapter, ten verses, and I have characterized its comments uh, by four words. First of all, in verses 1 through 5, the word stand is the word that I have chosen to characterize it by. Now, the me in Ezekiel 2 is the prophet. The he is God. And this is a record of the commission. In fact, I've titled the message, you'll be glad to know ten minutes after I started it, The Prophet's Commission. These are the things God commissioned Ezekiel to do when he called him to the ministry that he called him to do. Number one, he called him to stand. Verses 1 through 5. 
Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Ezekiel was called first to stand. Now there's some interesting things here and throughout the book, but clues that we may pick up and see the way that Ezekiel understood himself. He can be so hard-nosed, it is as if by virtue of some of the words that he says in isolation, he may, have seen, he may seem to be a very arrogant man. In fact, that was not the case. Over and over again in this book, the term son of man is applied to Ezekiel. Now, from our perspective, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ applied the term Son of Man to Himself. And that by the time of Christ, the term Son of Man had, had become more than what it was over 600 years earlier when Ezekiel used it. Son of Man is the same thing as saying human being. Rather than being a title or an indication of prominence, it emphasizes his humanity and his frailty. God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel reports to us, you are just a man. And Ezekiel accepts and gladly repeats that as it is applied to himself. Now, it is another subject what the term Son of Man had come to mean when the Lord Jesus Christ used it. When Jesus used it, uh, it had both elements of prominence and humanity. And one of the things about Jesus applying Son of Man to Himself while at the uh, same time He was clearly understood to be presenting Himself as Messiah was that the Jews would never have applied the term Son of Man to the Messiah on their own. Because he was to be the most prominent of the prominent. He was to be a ruling general, a great charismatic leader who would set up the theocratic kingdom, the kingdom of God's rule on the earth. And so every time Jesus used the term Son of Man, He was both acknowledging those who used it for Messiah, but He was also affirming His humanity. For Ezekiel, it was no title of honor. It was simply a statement of His frailty 
and His humanity in hearing the voice of God He received the strength that He needed to stand. And it is not really as great a a step in application as it may sound like to say that this is a good illustration of the fact that God never calls us to do anything without giving us the power to perform it. In hearing God's voice, He received the strength that He needed. And He heard again the voice of God. God says to Ezekiel, I'm sending you to Israel. Now, Israel was the chosen nation. The nation through whom God had chosen to bless the entire world the people that He had chosen to be the vehicle for the birth of Messiah. They had and they still have today a prominent place in the program and plans of God. But still, He identifies them as a rebellious people who have rebelled against Me, They and their fathers have transgressed me to this very day. They are stubborn and obstinate children. God loves us just as He loved His people Israel. But that doesn't mean that God is under any illusions about what we are down deep. He knows exactly what we are. And you know, one of the things that makes me uncomfortable about uh, being on the platform, and especially it happens and I see it coming and I dread it every time it does, when I am here and someone else is here and they come to the platform, or when I go somewhere else, it seems that we feel obligated to say something wonderful about somebody who's there. Well, the Lord never really practiced that kind of deception. And it's not necessary. You know, I, uh, I remember one of my favorite professors of theology talking about what for he and a group of his friends was a very great and high privilege. Back in the early 1960s, a group of seven of them who were studying in Europe were able to secure an appointment to visit with the great theologian Karl Barth. Now, when I call Karl Barth a theologian, if you know who he is or if you care... I do not intend you to take that as an editorial endorsement of Bart's theology in every case. So don't take it that way, but it is fair to say he is the most prominent Protestant theologian of the 20th century. And when the one who took them into Karl Barth's presence was introducing them, he was going around the little circle telling all of the wonderful things about every one of them. 
And after a couple of minutes of that, my friend says, Carl Bart waved his hand and said, Dear friend, we don't have time for this. He said, I have seven doctorates, but I will lay them all down in the anteroom of heaven before I go to be with Jesus. Ezekiel was, and you know, face it, he was not much at PR. If anybody ever needed an image consultant, uh, it was Ezekiel. And he simply took so much to heart his charge to let his message be, Thus saith the Lord, that he repeated in the clearest and most direct terms the things that God had communicated to him. But he did not feel an obligation, and you will not find it in the Scriptures that the Lord ever indicated that we should feel an obligation to gloss over or to deny the sins, the quirks, the faults of each other. Now, we are to accept and we are to love, right? But how are we to handle those things? Paul says, confess your faults one to another. We are to be accepting, we are to create an atmosphere and an environment where people can be set free from the things that bind them. But that does not include, nor it is is it the prophet's responsibility nor the church's to live in a state of denial about the conduct or about the sin or about the sins of attitude. They are never acceptable. They are not to be cast in a light as if they are acceptable. You know, often we excuse ourselves or we excuse others by saying, well, you know so-and-so, that's just what they're like. Or, you know, that's just me. I can't help it. Well, an accurate description in both cases would probably be, that's just the devil and something needs to be done about it. But you don't have to reject the individual with on one hand or accept the sin on the other. It is possible to accept the individual and to reject the sin. And, uh, but you ought to probably fold a little kindness and compassion into it uh, like Isaiah or one of the other prophets before you try to play Ezekiel you're liable to get your face punched in. <laughs> uh, he was not very smooth at all, but the Lord called him to stand. And verse 5 gives an indication of what God expected the bottom line of the prophetic ministry of Ezekiel to be. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. The role of the prophet in the Scriptures, the Old Testament prophet, who spoke always to the condition of individuals, the prophet spoke to the condition of 
the Lord's people. He spoke to the condition of nations. He spoke to the relationships between nations. But in every case, His call was not a stewardship of the ultimate results. It was a stewardship of the message. You know, in the books of uh, Kings and Chronicles, as we follow the jaded history of the divided monarchy after the rebellion in Israel following the death of Solomon, over and again, wicked kings seemed to recognize when they were in the presence of a prophet. They didn't like it. They didn't accept it. Often they put them in prison. At times they killed them. But the prophets understood that their role was not to gain acceptance, nor was it to have a following. It was rather to declare the truth. It was their role and their responsibility to speak forth the absolute, uncut, unvarnished truth as God revealed it to them. Now, I find a, a reference in Isaiah that at least you ought to make a note of it, but it's a very a graphic reference that illustrates this idea of stubborn and obstinate children. In Isaiah 48, verse 4, he describes... Uh, this condition. He uses the same word, Isaiah does, but then he defines it, and I like the definition. I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead is bronze. Now that's, see, now that's the difference between Isaiah and Ezekiel. That's another way of saying some things that could be said in not nearly so poetic a way. That their necks are stiff, stiff-necked and hardened of heart. Iron muscles in the neck and a bronze forehead. I assume that meant it was hard to penetrate. So he was called to stand. He understood from the beginning, as did Jeremiah that he would never know wide acceptance. That he would never be prominent in terms of acceptance in the inner circle of the leadership of his people. But he drew his sense of fulfillment and his sense of purpose from faithfully doing what God had called him to do, which was to speak clearly the Word. Now, the difference between Ezekiel and Jeremiah is Ezekiel uh, seems not to have been overtly emotional. Whereas 25 years deep in his ministry, Jeremiah weeps before the Lord and says, for 25 years... I have faithfully said what you've told me to say, 
and no one has believed. But Ezekiel seems to have made peace with that from the very beginning and always accepted it. His book, by the way, is the most chronological of all the books of the prophets. It is an indication of his fastidious detail. The modern uh, theological critics have finally gotten around to suggesting that there may never have been a man named Ezekiel and that a bunch of other guys wrote this stuff, but it was virtually the last one of the books of the prophets that the critics jumped on because there is a consistency of vocabulary and style all the way through it, and all the way through it with fastidious details, he gives dates, and the entire book from beginning to end is strictly chronological. He is called to stand. Now in verse 6, he is called to stay. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor their words, though thistles and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, neither fear their words, nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. One of the maneuvers in interpersonal relationships that most people, including us, have no difficulty in learning is the maneuver of flight. You know, if it's unpleasant, run away. If it's too tough, leave. And God knows that there are situations in life from the first year you attend school to the bitter end of that, Kenny, if you ever get through with school, through marriage and parent-child relationships and work, out in the general public and society at large, there are multiple inducements every day to flee. It was God's purpose for Ezekiel that he stayed. It was not of primary importance that he was comfortable. I mean, what was your first clue? Thistles, thorns, scorpions. You know, it's as if the Lord's saying, you might as well understand this right now, there probably are going to be more than a few times when you don't like what's going on. Stay anyway. It is a law of human life and human relationships that there is no growth without conflict. I don't like that as a truth, but it happens to be true. We grow through conflict. And it is true, though sometimes it most assuredly does not seem like it. It is true that nothing ever happens in our lives without the explicit permission of God. Nothing. We know that God is not sadistic. We know that God doesn't have as a purpose for His existence to ruin our lives. 
And yet how often do we feel like we have reason to believe that if God really, really cared, things would be different. Things are not different because God really does care. And if you haven't figured this one out, now's as good a time as any. If you flee from those things and refuse to allow the growth in your life that comes through the conflict, you avoid the conflict, you avoid the growth, the Lord will see to it that you go down a dead end from which there is no escape and the growth will occur whether you like it or not. You see, His purpose for your life is not your comfort, your pleasure, or your happiness. His purpose for your life is His glory, and He will do whatever is necessary for your life to demonstrate the glory of God. I invite you to the study of the book of Job, if you doubt that for a moment. He is called to stand. He is called to stay. Neither fear them nor their words, though thistles and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Neither fear their words nor be dismayed or afraid at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. He is called thirdly to speak. Verse 7, But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. Now this is getting kind of repetitious, isn't it? Rebellious, rebellious, rebellious. And it is a fact that if anybody ever has learned to use words economically, it is God. There are no wasted words in the Bible. And yet in virtually every Statement as the Lord, by the infusion of His Spirit, stands Ezekiel on His feet and they have a private ordination service where He is commissioned to ministry in virtually everything He says. He hammers on it. They are rebellious. They are rebellious. They are rebellious. And it is sad but true that uh, not very much has changed since then. For rebellion along with pride, are indigenous in our fallen human nature, and the last remnants of them will not be removed from us until we lay down this tabernacle of flesh and go to be with the Lord. As I read uh, this verse, I am reminded... And as I see rebellious, rebellious, rebellious over and again of a piece of advice that my mother gave me when I was too young to appreciate it. I mean, after all, I was 18. I was a sophomore in college. I was pastoring my second church. And I really felt like uh, that I had, you know, learned almost everything I needed to know. And my mother told me, and she repeated it after Red and I were married because she would figured out, I guess, I hadn't gotten it the first time. But she repeated it for the two of us in reference to ministry in a church. She said, if you will never expect anything from anybody, then you will be grateful whenever they do anything for you. Now think about it. That's good advice, isn't it? 
But how often do we think like that? Or do we not, in our human relationships, because of our fallen nature, we usually tend to think in terms of what's in it for me? Or at best, a quid pro quo. Tit for tat. Scratch me, I scratch you. Give me what I want, you get what you want. But it is as if the Lord was telling Ezekiel from the beginning that he would have a long, cold wait if he ever expected appreciation for the fact that he was delivering the undiluted truth to a rebellious nation. And he seems to have understood and accepted that. But he says to him the same thing that he said in verse 4. You shall, verse 4, you shall say to them, Thus saith the Lord. Verse 7, you shall speak my words to them. The role of the prophet in the Old Testament context was to deliver absolute truth. In fact, you are probably aware that if you read the laws governing the way that the, uh, the uh, children of Israel operated, that they were commanded that if a prophet ever spoke an untrue word, the prophet was to be stoned to death. Now, that, uh, that seems to me would motivate a fellow to integrity. And that was the role of the prophet. It was to tell what God said, period. Nothing more, nothing less. And there is, later in this passage, another illustration of this same truth. And not only that, he was to speak what God said, but he was to speak regardless of whether they listened or not. Now, that's the hardest thing of all to do. You know, in our discipleship uh, course this evening, Ray shared an example of when on a, on a stormy Sunday night, two families showed up at church. They expected him to preach. Well, you know, the, the right thing to do, let us maintain our pious exteriors here, is to go ahead and deliver the whole load. You know, the flip side of that... Uh, is the old farmer who told the young preacher who preached his heart out to five people one time, uh, you know, when I'm putting hay out in the field, if only one old cow comes up to the truck, I usually don't dump the whole load. But, uh, you know, it's hard to get motivated to preach to an empty room. It's hard to get motivated to preach when you know that nobody's listening. Now, I am very grateful to God that I have never one time had that experience in this room. And you just have no idea how valuable and how much that means to somebody who preaches. Ezekiel didn't have that luxury, neither did Jeremiah. They had to speak at times when open hostility resulted or when nobody stayed around to listen. And then he was called, fourthly, to surrender. Verse 8 through 10. Now you, son of man, 
listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving to you. Then I looked, behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and on the back. And written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. He was called to surrender. It is a fact of our emotional makeup that if we focus on another individual, we become like that individual. Now that is a very good reason for you as well as for me to be very careful about who we allow to dominate our thoughts. Because if you focus on someone, you're going to become like them. Now what was the danger for Ezekiel? The danger was that because they were rebellious, he would be rebellious. And God tells him again, right up front in the ordination service, they are rebellious, you better not be. They may not know better, but you're the one who's supposed to, and I won't put up with it. They never wrote on both sides of the scroll. The scroll wasn't good enough to take it. You know, it's like writing with a fluid-tipped pen in your Bible and then realizing when you turn it over that if there happens to be writing on the other side, you just lost it. That's what happened to the scroll. They didn't write on both sides. We won't look at it, but in Revelation chapter 5, the same thing is, is there. That the scroll that John was shown was written on the front and on the back. Now, I don't know everything that that means. It may have been a special illustration that was well known in the ancient world. But I do not think it is stretching it very far to say that if all of the paper was written on front and back, there was nowhere left to write. And maybe the greatest temptation of someone who stands to speak or to teach is to editorialize. The book only had one editor. I don't care what the critic says. That editor was the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't need the other editors. The book, he ate it. It was God's Word that he was supposed to deliver. It had writing all over it. It didn't have any room for him to write in his comments. And so he was to surrender by not being rebellious and by not giving his opinions. He was to limit his proclamation to what God said. Now that is the prophet's commission. To stand, to stay, to speak, to surrender. Only... What God commanded him was he allowed to speak. May we pray. Heavenly Father, I offer a special prayer for us, each one, that we would be delivered from the felt necessity 
to editorialize on your word. That we would be delivered from the felt necessity to editorialize on the lives of others. That we would feel only the necessity to be surrendered, to be responsible, to be responsive to you. To speak in your name only those things which you have spoken. Now, Lord, I pray for us further that as we listen to the words of Ezekiel, that we will not be the kind of audience that he has. I pray with David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. May it be true in our lives. May we always and ever give generously forgiveness, even when it is not requested nor where it is deserved as you have freely forgiven us by the blood of your Son. Do with us as you please, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We will sing as a hymn of commitment, just as I am. I don't know your heart. I don't know your need. But I do know that the need of every heart is to be perfectly surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That is the invitation. What He would have you do, publicly or privately, do it right now, do it quickly, as we stand, while we sing, just as I am. your presence, your kind attention tonight. It's time for us to receive God's tithes and our offering. And as our men take their places for the evening offering, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you never tire of giving. You love us always. And we are grateful to you for that. May we be examples in our lives. On the front, in the back.
They never wrote on both sides of the scroll. The scroll wasn't good enough. You know, it's like writing with a fluid-tipped pen in your Bible and then realizing when you turn it over that if there happens to be writing on the other side, you just lost it. That's what happened to the scroll. They didn't write on both sides. We won't look at it, but in Revelation chapter 5, the same thing is, is there. That the scroll that John was shown was written on the front and on the back. Now, I don't know everything that that means. It may have been a special illustration that was well known in the ancient world. But I do not think it is thinking it very far to say that if all of the paper was written on front and back, there was nowhere left to write. And maybe the greatest temptation of someone who stands to speak or to teach is to editorialize. The book only had one editor. I don't care what the critics said. That editor was the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't meet the other editors. The book, he ate it. It was God's Word that he was supposed to deliver. It had writing all over it. It didn't have any room for him to write in his comments. And so he was to surrender by not being rebellious and by not giving his opinion. He was to leave his proclamation to what God said. Now that is the prophet's commission. To stand, to stay, to speak, to surrender. Only what God commanded him was he allowed to speak. May we pray. Heavenly Father, I offer a special prayer for us, each one, that we would be delivered from the felt necessity to editorialize on Your Word. That we would be delivered from the felt necessity to editorialize on the lives of others. that we would feel only the necessity to be surrendered, to be responsible, to be responsive to You, to speak in Your name only those things which You have spoken. Now, Lord, I pray for us further that as we listen to the words of Ezekiel, that we will not be the kind of audience that he had. I pray with David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. May it be true in our lives. May we always and ever give generously Forgiveness, even when it is not requested, nor where it is deserved, as you have freely forgiven us by the blood of your Son. Do with us as you please, I pray.